Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, I had to bring on Bruno Santos from Ultimate Media Ventures. This is a man that hasn't really been in the news too much and doesn't post too much on social media, but I think has an important story to share. And, you know, he's held some interesting positions. He's come across from traditional business into running and operating his own esports organization with multiple physical gaming houses before it was the norm across into then having that company acquired and joining onto phase clan and now today with ultimate media ventures he's definitely got his finger on the pulse he knows what's coming up next in esports and gaming and is a really interesting guy to talk to and i really enjoy this conversation enjoy for those of you who have also lost your employment or are looking to skill up, we're trying to help here at Big Esports. We have an Esports Fundamentals course, which is helping people to understand an entry point into the employment within the esports and gaming market, whether you're coming straight out of college, university, high school, or whether you're trying to transition from another sport. To provide support for all of you, we're offering a pay-as-you-feel model. So you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash education. If you've lost your main line of employment and you can't afford to pay right now, now at all that's perfectly fine we're able to offer it up to you for free you can pay now you can pay later you can choose whatever you want the course is usually 127 dollars aud you can take it now for whatever you feel is appropriate or whatever you're able to afford hopefully this will help a few of you get back on your feet in the short term and also the long term all right bruno we're live mate it's taken us a few weeks or even two months to get here but we're finally here we're live how are you i'm great how are you chris yeah, good really man. happy to be good. here it's been we'll... my first live appearance like i'm always the back back guy never putting my face out there this is this is a new world to me i'm you know, <laughs> kind of nervous here yeah yeah well you know i had to had to get you on for a chat because i think you're kind of one of the like you're one of the ogs and one of the first people i think to move from traditional business into gaming and esports and i think that's an important story that needs to be told and then obviously you know with your would... history and in the space like you know like a lot of a lot of what i like to say is i've kind of sat in all six sides of esports i've been a player i've been a commentator i've run tournaments and that kind of stuff and then you've got so much experience in the similar you know in a similar kind of aspect you know in different sections and a different industry being across in the us so i think you've got an interesting story to tell yeah absolutely i appreciate that i you know I would love to be called an og of the sports i'm more like a tier two i think um i really consider you know, Reggie Fox, um, Hex, you know, there's um, a few other names. I'm horrible with names. A lot of other people that's been in the sport have really kind of like started this and started this movement. Even a lot of younger kids now that's not young anymore, but they're kind of like the really, the, the true one that started this business. I'm more like on a tier two. I saw the growth of the marketing um, going from 2012 to 2014. That's when I'm like, then big, um, League of Legends tournament happens. That's when it clicked to me. Like, okay, there's there's something there. I can help. I can invest. I can kind of like come in um, with the baggage that I already have from corporate business and being a gamer since like I can't remember. I was playing CS:GO Half Life on LAN on 2099, maybe. Yeah, right. that's how old I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then and I don't necessarily mean like it, I guess to clarify, like not necessarily an OG of all esports, but I think you're one of the first to come from traditional business across the esports space. Because like you said, you know, you, you've got yeah. people like Nadeshot and Hex and, and Banks and et cetera, who were kind of born out of, you know, 
growing up playing games, 10, 12 years old, becoming more professional at 13, 15, creating a business out of it. But, you know, now I guess in esports, we're seeing so much more. Say like David Chen Panda, who's also an investor in FaZe, you know, coming from traditional business across to gaming. Yep. You know, Clinton Sparks from FaZe or Jeff Pabst, you know, to use a bunch of FaZe examples. You know, they're all people who've made their, <laughs> you know, a lot of money and, and done good business in, you know, traditional startups or music or, you know, traditional business or, you know, Deloitte and in, in David's case. But Vent- you kind of- capital. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I feel like you kind of started, you know, back in twenty, you know, back in twenty seventeen with Phase, for example, coming coming out of that. So you said, you know, I mean, it's a super common thing, right? I talk to people at, at KPMG, I talk to people at other big accounting firms or traditional businesses, and they say, "Hey, Chris, I've been a gamer my whole life. How do I get into the esports market?" I mean, for me, it's always hard for them because I say to them, um, and I mean, we'll get into gaming versus esports discussion later. But a lot of the time, I kind of say to them, "Look." These companies need someone with your expertise, but they don't have enough money to pay for someone with your expertise. So, like, what would be your, you know, if, if someone from KPMG approached you and they're currently earning, you know, eighty to one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year working a corporate position and says, "Hey, Bruno, I want to leave it all for esports." Like, what would be your recommendation? Like, how could they get into the market? I mean, I am more of the kind of like conservative investment type of personality, so I would say start small. You know, build your legacy from a start. From a from a mm. small perspective, and like let the company grow with the space. I think there's a lot of growth to be gained throughout gaming and esports, and no one is kind of like good enough to start hard and start from the top. It's just you gotta you gotta pave you gotta pay your dues by you know understanding your community, understanding your your fan base. And they're, they're the ones who are really going to help you kind of like grow. And it takes sometimes time. It takes longer than people think. I think there's a lot of a mis- misunderstanding, um, you know, because of the booming of gaming and esports in general, that anybody can come in and, you know, get big really fast. And I think that's the biggest misconception. I think you just, you know, you start small and be consistent. You know, slowly you're going to grow your numbers. That's the same for any streamer, any YouTuber. It's just, you know, it's consistent in time putting, in time over time putting on, on the business itself. Mm, mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a hard, it's a hard sell sometimes to be like, hey, you know, leave your corporate job high flying and then go and volunteer as a social media manager for a tier three esports team that doesn't have a single financial sponsor. <laughs> it's a bit of a hard pill to swallow a lot of the time, but that's, you know, that's the suggestion for I me. Mean, and- if you if you're true, if you're like for example, if you're a director and you have you know all your skill sets, you already you know breached that seven year mark of experience in your business, you probably is wise enough and organized enough to manage your time to basically put two hours of your day into that business that is probably equivalent of a ten hour of a new entry level person. That's going to try to come up with new ideas. So mm. I think, you know, if the person is really passionate and really wants to come in, if they put just a little bit amount of time and, you know, and maximize their experience into the business, being open minded, because there's a lot of different approach to the gaming and esports business that, you know, that's very different than the traditional, which is sometimes correlated, but also different. I think that's kind of what makes it the growth even faster for someone that's just brand new. 
Mm. Yeah, no, that yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it's the same. It's the same way that you know anyone who comes to me to want to get into the industry. It's what I tell them. You know, I started off as a player and a commentator, and just started doing more. Just started asking for more jobs. You know, I was commentating Battlefield Two, and I said, "Hey, I've been playing a lot of Counter Strike Source. Can I go commentate that too?" And I said, "Well, if you want to do it, you can do it." So I did that, and then they said, "You know, our marketing managers left. Who wants to do it?" I said, "All right, I'll do that as well." You know, all as a volunteer, but enabled me to get that experience. And like you said, on the ground, like you really need a lot of that on the ground experience. You know, get your hands dirty and really try it out. And it, like to to frame like a lot of our conversation today, um, before we started recording this and before we went live on LinkedIn, you and I were talking a lot about gaming versus esports. And literally, even in a meeting this morning, I was explaining exactly what this is. And I feel like I probably explain it at least three times a week. So for those people listening, you know, gaming versus esports is like sport versus a leisure activity. So if you're just kicking a football with your friends down at the beach, that's not sport. That's just a leisure activity. That's having fun. The same way that if you're just playing Candy Crush on your mobile phone, your um, son, daughter, or cousin is playing Fortnite on the iPad, you're just playing a little bit of Dota 2, Solo Queue, that's not esports, that's gaming. It becomes esports when it's a structured competitive nature of play. So I, as as when I a few years ago when I was younger, used to play volleyball at 21 years old and I play Wednesday night mixed volleyball. And even though, you know, we would pay $5 per game to play, we had a jersey, we had a team name and we had a ladder to try to win. And that is when it becomes sport, the same way that the NFL and the NBA and anyone who's earning 500 to $30 million a year, they're playing sport. The same thing with esports. If you're just playing with a few friends and you're in an online ladder or a local internet cafe tournament, that's when it becomes esports. So for you, Bruno, um, you know, we were talking about this beforehand and, and you had a bit of a laugh. So you obviously understand we're exactly on the same page about understanding, I guess, the difference between gaming and um, and esports. And, you know, I said that I feel like so many people, naively so, and, and myself exactly the same in the past when I launched my company, wants to or used to focus way too much on esports without actually looking at it. Esports is the hype. It's the buzzword. It's exciting. It does have a large component of growth rate across the world. Um, say in Australia, it's 32.7%, which is ridiculously big. But still, globally, esports is a $1.1 billion USD market, as as, done, as said by Newzu, whereas gaming is a $153.7 billion market. So it's pretty much impossible at this stage to make a unicorn in esports, which is a billion-dollar company, because the whole industry is worth a billion dollars. So I'd love to get some of your thoughts about that. I know we had a bit of discussion um, previously, but I just wanted to lead into it with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I agree 100% with you. It's just basically, you know, let's, let's use the example of soccer or football here in America, right? You, you have the recreation when you throw a ball to a friend or, you, you know, you just kick around the ball or you play a pickup game. And you have a little bit of a more structure that the streamers are kind of like utilize it a little more. That's the kind of like the recreational competitive, right? You have some recreational competitions. You, can, you gather some friends. You put up a tournament. It has a small prize, sometimes big in the case of Fortnite. But, you know, you have a small, a small prize, but you, comp- you compete. It still is a co- recreational. In order for you to, like, really make to eSports, you have to become a professional. You have to have that 10,000 hours of practice and, you know, being, like, smart about how you introduce that training. You have to have a structured training. You have to kind of, like, really dedicate more than a couple hours a day, maybe four hours a day um, into the sports in general. Like, you know, specifically kind of, like, maybe one eSports in, in specific. But I'm totally agree with you. And 
that's the biggest difference. It's just gaming is so big because everybody plays a recreational game, right? Either football, volleyball, basketball, it's everybody doing something recreational. And, and at the same time, it just keeps growing, especially with uh, now multiple platforms, multiple type of games. It's just basically more balls and more type of games for people to play. That's why the recreational sports, like, let's say that way, YouTube or gaming in general, mm. is growing so much. Yeah, and you know, I just came to a realization that I'm following Brazilian sports around, which is your hometown, playing volleyball, which Brazilian, which Brazil is absolutely dominant in, playing football as a kid, yeah. once again, another another sport. And now today <laughs> I, I practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which, I mean, has Brazil in the name. <laughs> so there, I, just, I just came yeah. to that realization. That- you're very you're very close to my roots i would say yeah but i've been doing jiu-jitsu for my entire life my family it's uh you know very close to grace family you know have kind of like close relationship related that it's been you know in the gracie family forever um yeah yeah play volleyball i grew up at the beach so it was always beach volleyball um yeah so it's uh you're very close to my roots yeah, there you go. Yeah, man. Jiu-Jitsu is one of the best things I've ever done. I, I really enjoy um, overcoming the mental struggle. And, you know, I'm still a white belt, so, you know, still quite new to it as a whole. But, you know, I have a, a, a four-stripe black belt instructor from Brazil um, who won, you know, IBJJF brown belt worlds when he was younger and things like that too. So, yeah, I really enjoy that. I would suggest anyone, you know, and for me, I'd never done a contact sport in my whole life before. I played volleyball, I played cricket, and I played football or soccer. And that's it. And and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a hundred percent contact sport. So it was an in, it was an interesting path, <laughs> but I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it, it humbles you quite often, quite fast. But it's also teach you kind of like the 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 community around and kind of like the ego control that's a lot of you know a lot of people have. And depending on the martial arts, it's you know when you get on a on a mat it's just it's a lot more ego and a lot more competitive than it should be on a training on a practice you know you're rolling you, your ego should be zero you should be you know you should be you know water what do they say yeah like water or you know Flying something like, water, like that yeah. that's just flow yeah it's, yeah it's, that- so it's really humbling when you think you're like you're bigger and you think you're stronger than someone you suddenly on a choke and you're like oh guess i'm not that good yeah, exactly. And for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, usually the easiest way I try to explain it is, is um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is kind of like submission wrestling. It's kind of like wrestling, but with a lot of submissions. And like for me, you know, I'm, um, what am I? I'm 90, 90 to 95 kilos, which is what, 180 to 200 pounds. Um, and, you know, on my first day, I was rolling, which is sparring um, against a, a female who probably comes up to say my chest height. And I've probably got 40 pounds on her. And, you know, she was saying, just go at me. You won't be able to hurt me no matter what you try. And I was like, that doesn't sound quite right. And then I got submitted. So I got choked out like, you know, in our first five minute roll 10 times, you know, she was a purple belt and now she's a brown belt, which means she's quite close to she, she, you know, reaching the peak. If she's a purple belt. She probably, sorry, she probably tapped you on mount. You probably not even did anything. She was probably back on the ground and she tapped you even before you kind of like do anything just to kind of like establish, I can finish you at any time. Let's take it easy. Don't try to hurt me. I won't try to hurt you. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And another guy I rolled with a lot, another purple belt. You know, I think he's about 55, 60 years old, Japanese-Australian guy, super nice. But he always ends up with his legs around my head, no matter how. And I've got I've got 30 kilograms on that guy and, and 30 years. <laughs> but still, every time. Yeah, every single time he destroys me. So... But yeah, I guess like back to, back to the discussion. So we talked about like the gaming versus esports stuff, right? So your first real entry into the industry was by working and working at and also investing in Phase Clan. So did you did you go into them because of understanding the difference in gaming or esports, or like what was that pathway for you? Like why Phase? So so the pathway was actually before that. I as I see the growth of the industry at all, I've had the kind of like opportunity to start my own team. So I started Gorilla Core back in 2015 and 16. Um, and that's where kind of like it led to Face Clan. Basically, I acquire okay. a Brazilian team that was living in America because of my roots I'm from Brazil originally. I kind of like acquire a Brazilian team to play CSGO. We ended up playing CSGO. We played the ladder of CSGO. We made into the kind of like the, the tier before the pro league. Um, we fall short on the pro league um we also acquired a brazilian call of duty team at the time um we did pretty well was a kind of like was more of a um academy type of team it was a lot of young kids that i kind of like wanted to give the opportunity they had a good future they had a good um presence in brazil but they needed a little bit more practice call of duty team wasn't as strong in south america as it is in north america so we moved them mm-hmm. here um at the time they were even in texas and then it came park city I had two houses, two, two gaming houses here in Park City. Um, and then we acquire the uh, PUBG team. At the, goal, at the growth of PUBG, at the peak of PUBG, we had the number one PUBG team in the world. Um, play multiple tournaments, all at the beginning, all online, and then become more of a LAN event. Um, dominated, and that's what kind of like call attention at phase. Phase at the time, only had they're starting to structure the new kind of like really big CSGO team. So they were kind of like the had CSGO team. They passed the kind of like the beginning of the CSGO with a with the new players. Um and then they kind of like they got Nico and that's when they structured kind of like the you know a good force on CSGO. And that's kind of like when they decided to kind of like try to get more teams. So that's when they had a Call of Duty team already, which it kind of like was growing, was doing pretty good. It never kind of like really, I, I guess 2016, 2015, I could be wrong. I don't remember quietly, quite right. They had a little bit of a down and then 2016, 17, they kind of like on upwards a little bit. That's when they decided to acquire my PUBG team. That's when I joined the team. And then we ended up acquiring a bunch of Fortnite players. We, we established ourselves on Rainbow Six in South America. We expanded more for FIFA in Europe. So we're kind of like it, it led to a lot of kind of growth in esports because we we thought the esports presence is something to not just not just have one team and try really to get the top teams um, for multiple platforms. Mm, interesting. So so two gaming houses. So was that twenty was that twenty seventeen? You were saying two thousand seventeen. You had two gaming houses. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was yeah. not many gaming houses in the world in, in 2017. There was obviously a few in Korea, um, you know, a few in the US and, and you know, maybe one or two in Europe, yeah. and that was about it. Yeah. What's the, yeah, what's the was, experience was, like for uh, people that don't understand? 
Like what's the experience like in a gaming house or creating a gaming house? It's it's quite tough. I mean, we learn a lot and I personally learn a lot that gaming houses are really good and I think it should be like more it should be it should be happening. I definitely don't advise people to kind of like go for like a well structured team, a long term team with a gaming house. I do I do suggest people to go to a gaming house for more of a young academy. Because it's it's important to build the chemistry. It's important for them to kind of like live together, understand each other's deeply to kind of like get that chemistry necessarily in game. Once you pass that kind of like that momentum of about maybe a year, I would say a year max, you start seeing, you know, relationship falling due to kind of like too much of a, you know, living together, behavior problems, things like that. That's when I think kind of like the home office or the office for teams is more, I think it's a better path to create a more relationship, a better relationship between players and organizations and a more long-term, um, long, a better, a better long-term for the team. Mm, yeah, that's, that's true. And you see that with, I mean, you see that with influencer houses as well as team houses, right? No matter how well they work, they've yep. always got a certain life cycle to it. They only last like a certain amount of time. And that's it's like a super common discussion at the moment. Well, I guess, you know, with all of these teams that have been raising, you know, 20, 30, $40 million rounds, they've all moved in, into facilities, you know, G2E Sports and Vitality and, and 100 Thieves and et cetera, et cetera. They've all gone into those facilities. Um, except for except for FaZe, funnily enough, I guess. Like FaZe has an office, right? But, you know, they've obviously got the content creation house, but I'm not, I'm not sure um, off the top of my head where the, where the CSGO players are these days. They they are in in like they play basically play from home. They're all yeah, okay. scattered through Europe, so it's easier. And especially for the pro team and a lot of the games, because of the traveling is so it's so much. It's hard to kind of like even think about a, a house or you know mm. for them. Just sometimes they're they're traveling nine out of kind of like ten days of of a period. And then they mm. come home, they spend four days home, and then they're on the road for another 20 days going back back to back to tournaments. So it's kind of hard for a pro team, not only CSGO, League of Legends, I think League of Legends will maybe a little bit more, um, Dota, things like that. It's just kind of like it, it's hard with the traveling. Mm. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. So so I guess, yeah, it's, it's interesting then. So discussing, and we talked about this off, off stream as well, is that, and I, I talked about this on a live stream with Clinton Sparks, the, the VP of business development at FaZe, saying that FaZe is basically not an mm-hmm. esports team. Like, yes, they have the tagline of, you know, the world's largest esports team. And yes, they have a CSGO squad and a Rainbow Six Siege squad. But if you look at social media and such, it's mainly focused on the content creation houses. It's focused on partnerships with people like RiceGum. It's focused on Offset, one of their investors and things like that too. Do you think that's... Do you think that's paramount in, in success of an esports organization these days? Because we led this off by saying that, you know, focusing purely on an esports, I mean, the market's just simply too small. So, yeah, I think it's um, it, like on, on the face, I'm going to, you know, a little bit different than what we were just talking about um, prior to the live. They are a esports team for sure. They are now with about probably five to six professional teams, all kind of successful, all top, top. Um, tiers of all sports so they are the on terms of the exposure is the entertainment side of their business is so strong that end up eating the esports side so they're Mm. definitely bigger on the gaming and entertainment point of view doesn't diminish their presence on esports could they be bigger yes definitely there is a, a few kind of like details 
you know, behind the scenes and nobody really knows and kind of manage their social medias and things like that. For a lot of presence of the Faceline team, it's on FPS. And a lot of platforms doesn't allow a lot of content to be created around FPS in terms of monetization, in terms of pushes and audience and all that. So that's kind of like why you end up seeing a lot of content creation, a lot of entertainment more on Faceline because a lot of content that could be created from a first person shooter, it's kind of like not well seen by, you know, Twitter, Instagram and things like that. So it's a, it's, it, there is a strategy behind the chaos of kind of like how to manage a very successful entertainment business and also a very successful esports business, which you don't see very often in other companies. Other companies are more, you know, the top companies are push more into maybe let's say in case, in case of the 100 Thieves, their popular esports team is League of Legends, which is well seen by social media. So it's easier for them to kind of like monetize, push on that content, different than, you know, CSGO players or CSGO mm. in general. Yeah. So what, what was part of your decision to move on from FaZe Clan then? So obviously with today, with, you know, with Ultimate Media Ventures, you're working on so many different opportunities as it was. You didn't want to be stuck just with one brand. You wanted to branch out and do more in the esports space? Or? Yeah, I felt like that I got to a level with FaZe Clan, basically kind of like to a top tier, that it wasn't, it wasn't enough for me, right? As, lo- as much as Faceplan can grow, I think I can impact a lot of other companies. I can create my creativity is a lot bigger than Faceplan would ever allow me to be. You know, even right before I left Face, I was just kind of like one of the guys that always tried to push for the female streamer. And it was always hard to find a female. And as soon as I left, they kind of like announced Ewok. And I'm like, ah, man, <laughs> I'd love to walk and work with Ewok. I've been following her, and but nothing would happen before. It was just kind of like hard to kind of like get really into fruition. A lot of my creativity, a lot of my desires, especially, you know, being a large corporation with influencers, it's always hard to kind of like manage their desires and their needs and things like that. So, and mm-hmm. another thing that kind of like really breaks the deal for me was I was always a foundation type of guy. I always wanted build a foundation for esports and gaming because i believe if we don't build a foundation right now esports and gaming might just become an x game you know might become the skateboard of the 2000s which it it, it kind of like and i, I don't want to see that happening i want to i want us to you know surpass nba surpass nfl and continue to grow from you know what we have right now and yeah, that's, that's being attached to phase and that doesn't allow me to kind of like really build on that foundation really didn't allow me to kind of like contribute to the foundation of esports and gaming as much as I, and I wanted to. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting way to put it. And I think to kind of explain it for you in another way, like a lot of the, a lot of the self-reflection that I've done is, is, you know, I spent time in pair marketing, I spent time as a journalist, as a, as a player, as a player manager, as a commentator. And every time I thought I found the right thing, that I was going to do. I thought, yeah, I want to be the best player in the world. Yeah, I want to be the most famous commentator. Um, you know, yeah, I want to be the head of PR marketing for a Razor or a Corsair or a Seal Series or something like that. And what I found after doing that for like eight years was actually I want to work on the industry, not in the industry. 
I want to be someone who can bring in new business, new ideas and help to grow everything because I will be capped if I'm only doing PR marketing at Corsair, for example, which was a fantastic job. But after two years there, I went, well, I'm only stuck with one brand and I have to do sales. I have to work with PC modders and this other stuff, which yes, I do enjoy, but it's not my passion overall. It's, you know, it's not esports, it's not influencers, it's not growing the industry. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of stuck within this one brand and being able, not being able to do, you know, everything that I want to do. And yeah, I think, I think you definitely put in a good way in that, you know, we need people like what you're doing to focus on that growth of the industry because otherwise the industry doesn't grow. And, you know, it's an interesting thing I've seen in the past with, you know, think back to like 2008, all, all that outside investors ever knew was esports teams because esports teams were the only ones that were talking about themselves. So it was the only it was the only option that they knew existed because esports teams were the ones that went out and talked. There was no other options in the market for growth. So it's great to see you know people doing some other stuff. So thinking about that, I guess for, for you, you know, coming into where you are today with with um, Ultimate Media Ventures, can you give like a bit of a round the grounds as to as to what Alt works on as a whole and and your your you know piece within that organization? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just to add to um, the last piece is just. You know, I always had the dream to kind of like, you know, do something to be remembered. I don't care about money. You know, I'm not really attached to money. I'm not really attached to kind of like a, you know, a general status of being a CEO or being a director or, you know, like it's something, it's great. It's something to accomplish for sure. But I, you know, like with what I saw, my desire in esports and gaming is being one guy to be remembered in maybe a hundred years. You know, it's maybe you know, one guy that's kind of like among, of course, among, you know, thousands, hundreds, whoever is, you know, before or after me that you know, could really make an impact, it was to kind of like be remembered in a hundred years. Like, you know, remember when esports and gaming started? Oh yeah, remember that guy? That guy helped, you know, that's that's how I kind of like, I want my legacy to be. And I think that's, you know, it's hard to be attached to one specific company or just, you know, truly involved in one thing where you can at this point can really spread your wings and kind of like try to help as much people as possible mm-hmm. and that's kind of like what i'm doing with, with old always had a good relationship with them um been knowing them since i started was one of the the first place that i went for boot camping the call of duty team prior to mlg and a some year that i don't remember um, and they were kind of like starting, so it kind of like had a good relationship with them and always kind of like going back and forth, always trading ideas. And when I left phase, I was like, hey, you know, it's time to kind of like get together and help each other out. And that's basically what we've, what we've been doing is just expanding business, you know, working with products and ideas and now developing the brand a little bit more, the fashion brand that's kind of like going strong with a Call of Duty license and um and overwatch license as well so it's just you know kudos to them and and we've been doing a kind of like a good job and it's a lot more to come yeah definitely wanted to talk to you um about merchandising in fashion you know i've had um patrick mahoney on here before um you know talking about his company we are nation and and you know the, the work that they're doing in that space and um i really enjoyed the chat with him because I feel like merchandising is something that, you know, not everyone has a great handle on yet. I feel like you're kind of one side or the other. You're either a phase or a hundred thieves that can release a, a capsule drop that'll sell out in 26 seconds and then it'll go up on StockX for $400 or you're an esports team that struggles to sell 30 jerseys. There seems to be nothing in between, but it feels like to me that with the amount of influencers that are moving the amount of merch they do, you know, like a very quick case study, I have a friend who's got 
Um, he's got about 220k on Instagram now, 175 when he started. He's got a seven-figure business selling limited edition hoodies. So there's a lot of money to be made in this space, but it doesn't seem like many people are, are actually activating on it very well. So I'd love to get your your thoughts and, and ideas around that. It's there is there is a few strategies for that. You know, once it's really find out your audience, which a lot of kind of like esports team you're not really realizing. You know, there is a lot of I would say, you know, trying to reach for the stars without really understanding your capabilities. And I think that's kind of like a misconception that happens a lot. People that come to a kind of like to a company and say, hey, we're going to sell 200, you know, 200 jerseys. And, you know, based on their social media, you only have one influencers and their reach is only, you know, 200 people. And you say, you're not going to sell that. You may you might be selling 5% of that, you know, lower your number, lower your expectation, and you most likely you're going to succeed. You know, and I think that's kind of like the number one misconception. The number two mis- misconception is the amount of influencers, the amount of marketing strategy that you can put on, it's really what they're going to determine how to sell. You know, Faceplan has a big advantage because they know, you know, they know how to do that really well. And by mm-hmm. knowing how to do really well, it's something that I've been trying to teach to a lot of companies is you don't need to have Ninja, Shroud, and Dr. Disrespect to sell a lot of merch. You know, if you have a several amount of medium, sometimes even too small influencers can really influence their community, that's when you kind of could accomplish good numbers. You know, it's really knowing the small communities that surround your company. Sometimes people have 20 different communities because they have 20 different teams or 20 different influencers. It's how you activate around that. And plus really understand the taste of your community, right? Really understand the trend that your community is trying to kind of like reach is, you know, thirsty for. And if you find a middle ground between all the communities and, you know, brainstorm of what they might like, I think that's kind of like how, how close you can get to a successful drop. Mm. Yeah, and there was a, there's a really good audio book um, for anyone listening, I would suggest listening to. It's by Seth Godin, who's kind of a marketing genius. And, um, you know, they, he said, think about your first 50. People are so worried about their millionth customer. They don't think about their first 50 customers. And I think people are so concerned about raising $30 million and they're not thinking about, do I actually have fans? How do I activate on them? And another way to explain it too is that I feel like a lot of people are doing things the opposite. And the example I use is imagine if Tesla did the R&D, um, built the battery factory, built their built their manufacturing plant, hired all of the staff, did the marketing, pushed a car at the other end and then said, okay, how much do I need to sell this car for? It's cost me $3 million. So, okay, I'm going to sell a Model 3 for $3 million rather than the opposite way around and saying that, okay, how can I actually activate on my fans? How many products can I push? What can I actually sell? And that will denote how much I ask for a sponsorship. That will denote how much money I put into certain areas. That will denote, do I buy a CSGO team or not? You know, the CSGO team is going to cost me $1.5 million to operate. Are they going to bring me $2 million worth of worth of revenue through the door? Yes, no. And why, why not? And that decides as to how to get into there. And I feel like a lot of the time people don't ask themselves that question. And I didn't ask myself that question enough when I, when I started my business because I was used to working in Corsair where my salary was kind of just covered by sales that would naturally happen. So all I had to do was kind of try to make a cost-neutral exercise. But in a startup, if you're doing it at a if you're running a tournament, a team, anything, and it's cost neutral, you're losing money because you're paying taxes, you're paying your staff, you know, investors on your back because they want to make a return. So you need to start thinking about things like a little differently. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, you, 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 you nailed it. it. That's exactly what it is. It's 
really understanding, you know, finding your kind of like your 50s. That's that says it all because your 50s are the one who's going to really push your brand. Your 50s are the one that we're going to really kind of like help you grow to 100. Maybe not 100, maybe 52, 55. And that goes. It's, it's like any other investment, right? If you invest on stock, probability of you to hitting 100%, it's, you know, 0.1. You know, the probability of you to get your return in 5%, 7%, it's, you know, close to 100. So not necessarily 100, but, you know, close enough. So that's the same with the number of your audience and same of the number of the small community, you know. Start small, understand what they want, continue to feed them. Their loyalty will bring you more customers. Mm, yeah, that's true. So what what kind of trends are you, are you looking at in the esports and gaming market at the moment? Like what's what's really interesting to you? Well, I can tell you two two things. Let me see if I can really tell you that. Maybe I, maybe I will. Uh, there's two new companies that I'm kind of like creating. One of mm-hmm. them is fully educational in gaming company. I'm, you know, the company, I'll be launching a company in the next couple of weeks. Um, then I can talk more about it, but just basically it's just, it's a, it's a school program that it happens inside of the school program. So, you know, it deals with school districts to basically bring, you know, awareness, game skills, and even more of that soft skills, educational for senior high schoolers you know, maybe junior high schools and, and so and so really understanding the lower level. We're not talking about college. We're not talking about, you know, the higher level of pro. We're kind of like educating the new gamers. You know, mm-hmm. the, in fact, the, we're, the impact that we're trying to do is to really create the foundation of gaming, trying them good skills, trying to educate them on good behaviors. So organizations have more success dealing with professional true professional players mm, interesting yeah i think that and i think that school thing is is quite interesting you know for kids building that sustainable pathway like i i got invited by the australian computer society who's a not-for-profit that work with the whole it industry got invited by them to kind of a boardroom lunch with a member of parliament who works like opposition for future jobs i think that was their title and you know managing director of car which is a massive car selling website and heads of university and such and a lot of them were talking about like the future of kids you know getting into technology and it and specifically here in australia there was a number along the lines of there's going to be about three to four times the amount of it jobs created in the next 10 years than students to actually fulfill that and the average salary is quite high it's above them it's def it's like one and a half to two x the median wage here in australia um and what really annoyed me is that they just keep talking about coding all the time. They're like, oh, kids need to learn <laughs> to make games. They need to do coding. And I'm like, you know, I work in computers and I have all my life. Before I got into this, I did a, a Cert three um, traineeship in, in IT support and I worked in primary schools and such. And the last thing a kid wants to do a lot of the time is sit down and stare at lines of code and draw things out. Like I tried Game Maker 5 when I was a kid and that was a really like a drag and drop version of, of making a game. It's like Dreamweaver versus coding and it gave me a literal headache. I did not enjoy it whatsoever. And I think like what's really important to me is think about like what kids are interested in. There was some study that said something like 70% of, of high school, early high school children in the US want to be an influencer when they grow up. Well, what's behind that, behind being an influencer? Well, there's social media management, there's editing, both photo and video, there's content planning, 
There's business development, there's sponsorship, they need to register a business. There's so many things behind that. So can you get the kids interested in maybe use the buzzword of influencer, use the buzzword of esports to get them in, but then they find, hey, I really enjoy audio visual. I really enjoy camera operations. I really enjoy editing, broadcasting. I want to be a commentator. Um, I really enjoy player management and contracts, and that might push them into law to then become an esports lawyer or something like that too. But I think there's so much more than just the whole learn to code and build a game. You know, I think we're well past there's that. There's so much, yeah. There's casting, there's marketing directly with in-game. There's kind of like, there's so much, there's so many things they can do. Like what fun story is, I was talking to one of the developer for the Call of Duty. And mm. when I kind of like started explaining to him a few strategy of marketing, just kind of like just chit-chatting, you know, I say, why don't you guys kind of like using, uh, you know, car manufacturing to, you know, do something with the cars that's, you know, being driving in the, in the game. And they're like, oh, you know, we have a little problem with that because the car manufacturer don't like to get their car destroyed. <laughs> that's right. And I was like, well, wow, I just got school, but very good education. I didn't think about that, but how about billboards and, you know, and, and buildings and, and things like that, that you can kind of like really advertise and really open up the, you know, the sponsorships that you can be bringing into the game you know, for all the companies. And they're, and then he's like, well, yeah, we never thought about billboards. You know, it's all over the place. It's in, in buildings and even sometimes more murals on, on buildings. You can be doing that. It won't get destroyed. And it's still kind of like a good space to be using. And then and that's kind of like, that's, that's, that was a kind of like an interesting conversation. And that's just the capability that's kind of like even understanding the game, the depth of the game it can bring you to kind of like a more educated life. Even mm. as a player, kind of like one of the things that I used to say to play is to kind of like play with intention. You know, don't play to play. As much as it's automatic for you, it's something that you know what to do. Play with intention. Understand what you and your team is doing. You know, try to see from an outside perspective because then as a young player, you will learn how to coach yourself. You will learn how to coach others. You will learn how to analyze the game from a different perspective that everybody is, is doing. You know, mm. take your time to recreate. But, you know, when you're in the game, like really, really be in the game. Understand the mechanics. You know, find the mistakes. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I think, um, you know, I think that, that brings me back to, you know, my days as a semi-pro CSGO player, you know, playing against... Fox Seminole, who became Renegades and now 100 Thieves, you know, never at the level that they were, but on, on the same stage. And, you know, trying to show people that becoming that kind of player, and I really like that thing you said, play with intention, is you need to learn how to learn. The same way that if you go to university, you know, I kind of left the industry and did uni for a year, studied social work, and I needed to learn how to write an essay. I needed to learn how to do a reading. The same way that in gaming, a lot of the time, you need to learn how to watch a replay and a demo. And, you know, often people will what we found is that people who were stuck in amateur kind of leagues forever, they would watch replays, but they'd watch themselves and they go, man, how good am I? Like, how good was that kill? And then they just ignore anything that was bad without actually learning how to learn and asking, okay, how do I watch the best player who plays the same position as me? For me on, on dust two T side, it was Zist playing um, for Fnatic at the time and asking, where does he go in certain rounds? What angle does he look at first? Why does he throw a grenade then and not a grenade another time? Which three angles does he pre-fire in mid-doors and things like that too? And really just like questioning, questioning a lot of things a lot of the time. And I think that's, it's, it's like critical thinking that, that works in business so much as well, where you start to think like, hey, 
you know, Valorant is, this is a common topic, I guess, right now. Valorant is the thing that's upcoming. There's not really any tournaments for it, but why are teams spending, as, as per an, es- an esports uh, observer article that just came out, why are teams spending 15 to 25K a month on salaries? Because they can. I think it's I worth know, them right? shooting their shot. Like there's got to be a reason <laughs> behind it and they're not just doing it for no reason at all. There is a reason behind it. Behind it, the, the reason behind it is the 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 revenue share programs. I don't know. If you should be sharing this. I don't know. Yes, sir. Good. If nobody is there, it's the revenue share programs that helps the teams really establish themselves as your organization. So the Rainbow Six works like this. League of Legends. I'm pretty sure it's going to be moving in that direction. CSGO should be moving in that direction pretty soon. So there is a kind mm-hmm. of like an incentive for bigger, not big organization, organizations in general. To kind of like be stable on that game with the right help in order to make the game successful and the professional scene successful as well, which I think is one of the best business plans that could happen for esports in general. It helps the game, it helps the platform, it helps the, the not only the big teams, but also small up and coming teams because it gives them the opportunity to a low budget really kind of like have a competitive team. Mm. No, that's yeah that's definitely a good point yeah that that sharing has been i mean it's, it's been monumental if nothing else like the dota 2 international you know putting 25 percent of all companion purchases into the prize pools made it you know what was it last year 32 to 34 million you know we're already at 27 million. million yeah we're already at 27 yeah. million this year you know planning to overtake that it's it's been massive or well, stickers you know was was a big thing in the past too i remember that like I remember I got invited to commentate for the first ever face at CSGO tournament. It was a 40K tournament and I wasn't able to go because they wanted me to fly it in six days and it takes much longer. Like, even though Australia is literally like a colony of, of the UK, apparently we can't go over there unless we get a visa, which is weird. Um, but, you know, I didn't have time to do that. But that was a tournament that was funded <laughs> off the sale of an M4A1S sticker skin, you know. So it's like yeah. it's so important to do that. And I think all the time people ask me, you know, Chris, who's making the money? Who's winning? in esports and gaming and really it's the people i feel who own the content so like we're talking about with phase you know being a content media organization and it's the game developers slash publishers you know they're the ones that are making all the bank right now because while you know valve ran a 34 million dollar tournament only 1 million of that is actually from their own kitty and that's only 25 percent. so they've they've banked an extra 80 plus mil you know let's say they've spent 15 20 on running the tournament because they fly all the players in they're in a nice hotel etc they've made 50 million dollars profit from a marketing exercise which is ridiculous because ultimately esports is often a loss leader it's the reason you're running a tournament in esports is to get people interested in the game to get them into your smaller leagues to playing just casually and spending money on dota 2 skins and valorant skins and league of legends champions and you know various various new things like that too so it's amazing that that happens but and i think that really brings me into part of the next discussion that one of my advisors helped me to kind of unlock in my brain and understand recently is that um, people not only, I believe, are focusing too much on esports as a whole, but also they're focusing on creating a whole business in esports, which is inherently a loss leader itself. So if you're trying to just run, say, tournaments and you don't have any technology backing that, you don't have any data that you're scraping, you don't own the fans your whole business is operating on the loss leader of esports. You're running a tournament for someone else's game to give them casual players to play in. And if you're not being compensated by that developer, which which is often the case, you're trying to make a whole company off a loss leader and trying to sell sponsorship to, you know, to back yourself. And that that is concerning, I think, in the long run. Absolutely. And I think it's just it has to have a differential, like any business that you decided to open. 
you know, the esports and gaming business now it's getting crowded, right? It's getting crowded with, you know, big companies are getting crowded with a lot of companies controlling a lot of parts. And because the problem with esports in general, I think it's just, you know, the publishers controlling so much, right? It's that that's a big problem. It's a problem that I, I don't think it, it's going to get, you know, fixed anytime soon. I don't think mm. they would ever open their IP. And that's kind of right. But I think in terms of longevity and, you know, for the better worth of the whole industry, if they control too much, it could die. You know, it could just be kind of like, you know, if there's no, if there's no way for companies to make money at their early stage, there's no, there's no economy. There's no a constant economy for, for the ecosystem. So it, it ended up dying. And mm. on that note, I think just, I think with, if you want to start, if you're getting into the business, you got to have a differenti- differentiator. You have to you have to be you have to be doing something. Even if you're doing a tournament, you got to be doing a, you know try to do a tournament just for female and focus only on the female um, you know scene, which is kind of like small for the tournament. And there's a lot of growth um, with the kind of like with the women scene. So that would be kind of like a good a good beginning. I, I like to touch base on the adaptive um type of tournaments you know people that don't have a hand you know how can we stretch a tournament just for people that's blind or you know something like that mm-hmm. i think that's a that's a good beginning of something that i would love to be you know seeing happen it's just i don't see as much as happening and gaming i think it's more welcoming to any type of person than any other sports there's absolutely no limits that can hold you back you know you can you can be any type of disability and you most likely can be able to play video games. There's adaptive controller now. There's there's adaptive type of you know visual um, products that can help person with visual disability. So I think there's a you know I think the disability market is something that should be more utilized for the better worth because they deserve it. They deserve the attention, and I think that's a that's a good market to target in. Yeah, and I think like a like taking what you said and, and going broader and I think a lot of people are realizing this now is that you need you just need to do something different because even though esports and gaming is still new you know what we've seen is that so many people have just tried to be the biggest and the best esports team in the tier one titles you know overwatch csgo league of legends like that's not that's not a brand identity just being the best at the same games that everyone else is trying to be the best at everyone's tried to be the biggest prize pool counter-strike tournament you know million dollar major and things like that well that's not a brand identity like how can you do something that's meaningful and different like you said working in working with underrepresented un- underrepresented groups you know within esports women massively underrepresented group providing them an opportunity to test their skills to become better players and to become world champions working with people with disabilities because gaming i mean it requires you to sit at a computer so you don't need to be a six foot four, strongly built person like you do in the NFL to play esports and gaming. You don't have those limitations. And then also, like you said, using adaptive controls like Microsoft has brought out and stuff too. And also looking at the way that marketing works as well. You know, what what are you offering that's different? And, uh, you know, I, I, a thing that um, Clinton Sparks said that's going to be coming up in, uh, him and I did a joint talk for this influencer marketing conference that's coming up in about a week, an online one, a pre-recorded talk. And a thing that he said that I really liked, and this goes back to our merchandise conversation before, is you have people who are popular, people and brands who are popular, and you have people and brands who are influential and influencers. 
And I think that's a question to ask. Like, are you just popular? So say when I when I went in 2016 to the Overwatch World Cup in Australia, there was Team Australia, Team, fin- team Finland, I think maybe Team Korea, and one other team there as well. It was a sold-out arena. Um, you know, 1,100 tickets were sold out in 30 minutes or so. Um, there was massive lines for the Blizzard merchandise store. It was selling out every single day before the line had even finished. Um, people were going crazy in the arena. There was a lot of news there um, from traditional and esports. Everyone had a fantastic time. But what I noticed was that the Team Australia players could just walk through the lobby and no one would even bat an eye, eye at them. They wouldn't even stop to talk to them, you know, and there's no way that if you were an Arsenal football player, you'd just be able to go and walk through a crowd. You'd be swamped. There's no way you could do that as Hugh Jackman. There's no way you could do that as FaZe Banks. There's no way you could do that as Ninja or Tafui. But, you know, what that taught to me. I think on that, on that note, I think it's more of, you know, teaching the kids how to be professionals. I think, you know, a lot of the young kids on this force, they don't know how to represent themselves. They, you know, mostly mm, are true. too young. They never like, it's funny enough on, on the new company. One of the things that we teach is basically how to behave yourself, right? How to, how to participate on a conversation. How do you, how do you get yourself trained to be on an interview? How do you get, um, get yourself trained to be on an interview that might get you land the job as a player to a big organization? You know, mm. how to react? How to prepare yourself for that there's a lot of like under de- undeveloped skills that the kids these days are not really utilizing that they don't have especially in gaming it's just kind of like they're so used to just practice sit and practice sit and practice that they are lacking on soft skills they are lacking on kind of like the education that might help them to become an even bigger star like you see nowadays from a soccer a soccer player a baseball player a in a basketball player is mm. how to kind of like present yourself, you know, how to give a good interview. I've seen, I've seen interviews that the guy was, you know, win the tournament and, you know, CNN, yes, me and whatever came to talk to him. And she asked a question. He's like, pause for a second. And he looked at her and he kind of like, it took way too long to say, what did you just say? <laughs> and, yeah. and then she kind of like laughed It become kind of a joke. And then he kind of like laughing and he's like, no, I'm serious. I haven't paid attention at all. I'm just standing here <laughs> and then kind of like and proceed from that. But that's, that's very regular behavior, especially not knowing how to decompress out of a, you know, out of a five hour game. Sometimes it takes, you know, you're like on the zone for five hours. And then right after you have to boom, get on and go to an interview. And you're like, what am I doing here? Do I need to say something? Do I need to give a command out of my game? Because that's the only thing going through my mind right now. I'm just exhausted, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I had some, and, you know, for anyone that wants to listen to more about that, I had some interesting discussion with Peter Dager, you know, recently retired, but previous Dota 2 world champion, you know, played in many top teams as a captain and, and supporting those teams and was a CEO of Evil Geniuses for a while as well, kind of talking about that from the Dota 2 player side because the Dota 2 players are prolific in that kind of don't care, don't want to do media, just want to play the game and win. But, you know, it really kind of stifles their their reach and it stifles their growth. And looking at, you know, the world champion team at the moment, Team OG, who's won twice, you can see just a correlation in Twitter and Instagram followers versus how many times they post. You know, No Tail's pretty active, Seb's pretty active, but Arno, who's their carry, and, you know, arguably because he's won two world championships, the best carry in the world, will tweet once every three months. And as a result of that, he's a world champion player with like 30,000 followers. Whereas the other guys have multiple hundreds just because they talk. 
to the fans. They do interviews, you know, and they're they're a little bit more outgoing. Yeah, you're definitely right. That's so, simple. So is there anything else that you're looking forward to next? I mean, you've already talked a lot. You've you said you're building three companies, you're working at Ultimate Media Ventures, you're an investor in, in FaZe Clan. So there's obviously a lot on your plate. But I mean, what's coming up in the in the really new future for Bruno? More companies, more opportunities. Just create opportunities for others. Embrace our industry to the fullest. You know, just really try to bring esports and and kind of like gaming in general to a to a level that, you know, other new ventures like will be seen, you know couldn't make it, you know, really put us in the map as we deserve. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many opportunities. There's so many now big companies that wanted to get involved and getting involved without nobody really knowing. And that's just kind of like to enhance the, you know, the capabilities of what gaming and esports could be in the future. I think it's yeah. just, you know, the skies is the limit, truly. Yeah. That's great. And hey, a final a final question for you, one that I get asked quite a lot. Where do you get your esports market information from? How do you how do you keep up to date with with news and what's happening? I'm a very analytical person and I have a bad habit on being on 24/7. So, I am on social media 24/7. I have three monitors in front of me, you know, and sometimes I you know, even I'm sometimes in seven to 10 different discords community that has absolutely nothing to do with me that I just yeah. constantly kind of watching over. And the way that my brain is wired, it's kind of like weird because I can gather information to kind of like build a more summary information. And that's kind of like how I see the trends. It's, I used to call, I call that, which, you know, I make fun of myself with that. I can see the future because that's how my brain kind of like interact. I can see, I can gather information from sometimes a small trend that's not even picked up yet, but mm-hmm. based on other information and, you know, different information that could feed into that trend, it tells me that in, in six months or a year, that could be a new trend. Um, plus experience, you know, following the right people and, and things like that. It's just, and also gut. You know, have my mm-hmm. sixth sense, my what's it called, the uh, Peter Tingle, kind of like activate to really, you know, get yeah. on. So it's uh, <laughs> that's basically how I how I see. It's kind of crazy, hard to you know explain, but it's it's yeah. basically yeah. it. You did a you did a better job explaining that than I than I ever can because I'm kind of similar. Not not so much Discord communities, but certain people. I'm quite stringent with who I follow on Twitter, for example. Like everyone I follow on Twitter is for a specific reason. I try to explain that to people. It's either to monitor growth, monitor what they're doing, um, you know, look for trends. And, you know, and obviously when you um, have been around in the industry for a long time, like you have, you get people start to send you information too. And that's a godsend because you're like, wow, like it, it's some of the work done for me. <laughs> people will send me trends and, and articles to read and things like that too. But yeah, it's hard because I guess if you're trying to be at the forefront, like what you were saying, it doesn't necessarily help that much to read dot esports or the esports observer or such because you probably know about it before you know before they've written about it and before they've published the article. Yes, a lot, a yeah. lot like that happened. And also, um, you know, one thing, one thing that's important too. What was I going to say? Ooh, just one way. Um, oh yeah, a, a lot of the things that I do is I stole that explanation actually from Gary V. You know, okay. he explained it the way that I, I, I watched it the first time. I was like, wow, that's exactly how I do things. It's, it's crazy. 
So my brand is wire basically weighted 80 20. You know, anything that I'm doing right now, I'm 80% and 20%, I'm kind of like looking at everything else. Inside of the 80%, I'm 100% committed, I'm 100% focused, but I still have 20% of my brain that's looking outside my focus, looking outside my industry, understanding what's happening in music, understanding what's happening in entertainment understanding what's happening in different platforms that's not even related to gaming necessarily but could eventually feed feed into my industry you know so mm. that's kind of like a good explanation of how i see things too is just my 80 20 rule you know yeah. around yeah. everything that happens in the world yeah well explained so if anyone wants to follow up with you or, or follow what you're doing online where's the best place to do so i'm not a savage on social media I don't post a lot. I, like I said, you know, I'm always the, the back behind the curtains type of guy. So I'm not a public figure or a public person. I'm always just doing my thing. And, you know, I'm really happy that you got invited. It's because normally I'm thinking, I don't think nobody really knows me because I'm not, a, I'm not out there. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that don't know me or have no clue who I am. Even people, sometimes I met a ton of people. Um, 2018, I think I traveled 192 days of the year, flowing oh, yeah. from all kinds of tournaments and really analyzing all kinds of tournaments, meeting tons and tons of people. And I'm pretty sure the tons of people that I met, people were like, who is this guy again? I just spent an hour with him, but I have no idea who's this guy. So I'm always that type of guy. So I would say LinkedIn is probably where I kind of like try to be more active. Um, DME. If you have any questions, I'm on Twitter, DM me on Twitter. I, Twitter, I just basically use to, you know, let my, I think my more of a, my private life, I guess. Like, I just kind of like have fun. I don't try to be super professional or have a, too much of an opinion on Twitter just because it's too toxic. It's no man's land. So I try to kind of like stay away. Mm. But I do look around all the social media. So if you think I'm not watching you, I am. <laughs> Fantastic. What's your, what's your Twitter handle? What's your Twitter at tag? Bruno Santos um, GC. Bruno Santos GC. There we go. I'll look you up right now. <laughs> we'll get connected on there. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, man. It's been, it's been a great discussion. Thank you for having me, Chris. It was a pleasure to no meet worries. you, you know, face to face, I would call that. <laughs> about as close as we can get right now, man. We're, we're back into lockdown <laughs> yeah. here in my state, so full full lockdown once again. So we're going to be stuck inside for a while. Yeah, right, we're so think- here in Park City, we're cold. We're cold orange, we're cold yellow. So it's you know right. it's quarantine with a, a a few kind of like with a little bit of a breeding. Yeah. Okay. Well, good luck. <laughs> good Thank luck. You. So thank. Thanks for coming on and thanks to everyone else who's listening in, whether it's live right now on the LinkedIn stream or whether it's listening to the audio-only version of the podcast. We'd love if you could leave us with a rate and review um, and leave us with some encouraging words and also send us some feedback if you wish. We'll be back soon with a whole bunch more of these. Um, We've got some very interesting guests coming up. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 